All right. Man, I have weather changed today, and I have been sniffling all day, and nothing is stopping it. And I know there's Kleenex up here. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open up God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in right relationship with him, walking by the Spirit. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we have to just fellowship around the teaching of your word, being reminded that uh, we are to trust in you in all things and live our lives walking by the Spirit, step by step, moment by moment, dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, who leads and directs us through uh, through your word. Father, we pray for us tonight that as we look at your word that we may come to develop discernment and wisdom in our lives as we look at the analysis of what is going on in uh, in Israel there in the ancient world, and we can see many parallels to what we, uh, ha- is happening not only in our own nation, but many nations uh, in Western, uh, Western civilization, Western Europe, South America. We have the, all of these things taking place throughout this Western world. And, Father, we know that the only hope is Jesus Christ, the only confidence, the only certainty, the only absolutes are your word. And yet we see a culture that is uh, strongly determined to be uh, not only in opposition, but to try to squelch your word and ministries and the truth of your reality. So we pray that we might be steadfast as we face this, this circumstance. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles back to Judges 20, where we were last week, and just uh, continuing the look at this battle that is described in Judges 20. Now, Judges 20 and Judges 21 are two of several chapters that we find in Scripture that when a lot of people read them, they get to the end and they think, what was that all about? And it's hard and difficult when you get to some of these chapters and say, well, Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is profitable for teaching. What in the world am I supposed to learn from this? And as we have seen throughout Judges, that what we have in, in uh, historical literature, in narrative literature, in the stories of the Bible, that this is d- divine editorial 
God the Holy Spirit is giving us the facts that are necessary to be able to understand uh, what the lesson is, that it is actual history, but we can only derive the lessons from the fr- within the framework of the uh, instructive parts of Scripture. And instructive parts of Scripture are passages like the Psalms, pa- uh, New Testament epistles, uh, some of the passages in, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are instruction. And we base interpretation on instruction, not on what happened, because uh, history or narrative or stories just tell you what happened, and it doesn't necessarily tell you, uh, it makes it clear why it's happening in many cases, but you have to understand that grid from the instruction, instructive passages, um, Christ's instructions in the Gospels, the specific instructions in the epistles. And a lot of people have gone into great error because they've taken narrative passages like Acts, and they think that what Acts describes is what they're supposed to do. Acts is merely telling you what happened, and it's not necessarily prescriptive. It is only descriptive, and that's a major problem with a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of hermeneutics. They don't, people don't understand how to go into a passage, how to look at a historical narrative within the overall purpose and argument of a book, and interpret it within that framework. And so they'll read all kinds of things into it, and come up come out with. Um, all kinds of problems, the old saying of garbage in and garbage out. So what we've learned so far in looking at this this last episode, 19, 20, and 21, is that we see that the nation goes into a civil war. The civil war is what we're describing. The consequences come up in 21, and the lead-up to it is in Judges 19. It begins with the crisis in one family with a couple with a Levite who is, we're not so sure he's all that spiritual, but he is, uh, he's got a wife or concubine, and she gets angry with him and goes home to her father. Now he's patient, he waits four months before he goes to get her, but in the consequences of their travels and what happens, it leads to this rebellion within the nation. The nation just completely fragments and goes into self-destruction. Second thing we learn is that the crisis begins with this Levite. He goes to get his wife, and he delays on the way home. And it's because of that delay that they arrive late, and they have to stay in Gibeah. He does not want to stay in Jebus. This is the irony. There's a lot of irony here. And irony is, in some ways, it's like sarcasm. In other ways, it's showing things that, that shouldn't quite be this way. And when you see that, God's making a point that he, he did not want to stop in Jebus, which was a Canaanite city. And so they were, they were obviously had all of the norms and standards of the Canaanites and thought in totally in pagan terms, said, we won't be safe here, but we're going to go to an Israelite city, Gibeah, and we'll be safe there. And then it turns out there were in more danger there than they would have been if they had been in Jebus. And this is the point of this, 
this narrative through Judges is that when the people got away from God, when they rebelled against God and turned their back on God and went into the uh, idolatrous worship, then they became as bad, if not worse, than the Canaanites they were supposed to destroy because they had become so perverted. So they head back, they go to Gibeah, and when they are in Gibeah, they face a problem. He's offered hospitality by another non-Gibeonite, and when night falls, then there is a knocking on the door, And its situation is very similar to the story of what happened with Lot and his daughters when the two angels came to warn them to leave Sodom, that God was going to bring judgment on the city. In fact, the narrative is crafted to be a parallel. A lot of the words are are the same. And so these uh, sexual perverts come in at night. They're banging on the door. They want the... um, uh, they want the the, the uh, wife of the of the uh, uh, the daughter of the man and the wife of the the concubine of the Levite, and so finally they, they yield and give it up, which shows they're not protecting their women. Shows a very bad view of of women in which is typical in paganism, and she's gang raped, and then he discovers the next morning she's lying on the doorstep, she's dead, but he just very cold, very callous, just says, uh, let's go, get up, get ready, and then she doesn't move. So we see that there's just absolutely no no compassion, no such thing as loving your neighbor as yourself or even loving your concubine as yourself. And so the Levite then uses an extremely gruesome and graphic um, ancient Near Eastern custom to call, the tr- call out the troops, and he... Um, divides her body into 12 pieces. He basically will will butcher her, cut her up, and send these pieces to the 12 tribes. And basically the message is, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't respond to this, to this call. In the biblical teaching of the Old Testament, the human body has significance that at death you treat it with respect if possible. So this just shows that they're just in complete violation uh, of uh, all of the norms and standards. Then in Judges 20, with the start of this civil war, we see the anatomy of self-destruction. That was last week. And then we're asking the question, we didn't quite get to this last time, why does God's guidance lead to the loss of the first two battles? If you read through this, you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? Because they ask God, what should we do? And God says, go to battle. Put Judah, tribe of Judah out in front, and you go into battle. And they go into battle. In the first battle, they lose 22,000 troops. And they come back, and they're just devastated. Now, a lot of people go to the Lord. They ask for divine guidance. They do a lot of things that they have been told that they should do in making a wise biblical decision. And then when they make that decision, two or three years down the road, it, it not only hasn't turned out to be something prosperous, but it has turned out to be something that they interpret as disastrous. 
And so they say, well, I can't really trust God to give me guidance. So we have to talk about that a little bit. What is the Lord teaching uh, in relation to the context of the Old Testament here? Why does he guide them into battle and then they have uh, 22,000 casualties in the first battle and 18,000 in the second battle? And so then the other thing that we saw is how the decisions of individuals within a nation impact the whole nation, so we're not an island. So we look at this structure, and in 19, we see the lead-up to the reason for the Civil War, the background to the attack in 19, 1 through 6, and then the details of the horrific attack in 19, 10 through 28. You can see that's 19 verses, so that's clearly where the emphasis is. Then we look at the Israel's response to the attack, Last time we started 1929, but we only got down to verse 13 in chapter 20. So we're still into that, and then we'll see the uh, implosion and the aftermath of that in the last chapter. Now, one of the things that we need to talk about just in terms of a little background is what is happening in this particular uh, chapter. And one of the things that is happening here that's, that's a background is the concept that is often referred to as holy war. Now, you've heard some people talk about these wars against the Canaanites, the people in the land, the God says to totally decimate them, annihilate them, kill every man, woman, child, infant, and in some cases all of their cattle and all of their sheep. And that term holy war is used to de- describe a particular uh, type of war. And, uh, but that doesn't come in this chapter, okay, or in the Bible. The Bible does not have holy war. That term holy war came as a result of the, the uh, Muslim milita- military expansion in the seventh century. Until then, this was never understood as holy war. The term that is used in the Hebrew is the one that's in the last paragraph up there. It's karam. And it's the cognate, one of its cognates, one of its meanings is the Arabic word harem. And in a harem, you are separating out the wives of the king or prince or whomever and the sheikh and they are restricted and off limits. They are devoted to their prince or king or, or who their, their husband is. So that's one idea. So the main idea in this word harem, and the noun is harem, uh, is a ban or something is then devoted. For example, in a harem, the women in the harem are devoted to their prince, king, sheikh, whomever. Or it also has the idea of to destroy something completely. And that's how it's used in these wars. It is a war of judgment. So I really think that's probably the best way to do it because God is bringing judgment upon these nations. If you remember in, uh, judge, um, excuse me, in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 15, when God has made the promise to Abraham and is establishing the Abrahamic covenant, 
He predicts that they will spend so many years out of the land and they would become enslaved by a foreign people and then God would bring them back to the land because he said that the, the, uh, the, the, the sin and the evil of the people who lived in the land of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Amorites had not reached its fullness yet. God is long-suffering. He waited four centuries before he brought judgment on the Canaanites, giving them the opportunity to turn back. And we go to passages like Second Peter that some people, uh, scoffers, would come in the last days because they're saying, where's the promise of his coming? Uh, because God is patient and long-suffering. And recently, as I've thought about that passage, I've thought about how long God waited uh, with Noah, waited a 100 years before he brought the flood. With uh, the Canaanites and the, these uh, pagan uh, peoples that lived in the land, he gave them 400 years for their wickedness and evil to come to its uh, full fruition uh, before he brought judgment upon them. We have a lot of people that you know, I know, we know of pastors that speak a lot about about prophecy. And though the rapture could come at any moment, there's no sign for when the rapture will come. The more I think about the long-suffering of God, I think we make a mistake talking a whole lot about the Lord could come tomorrow. Let you Praise the Lord. He could come tomorrow. Yes, he could, but he may not. He's long-suffering. He may not come for 400 years. And we've all seen the posters that were popular in the 70s with uh, people being raptured, all these bodies going up from a major cities, and there's car crashes, and there's airplanes being wrecked. But I think it's just as likely that there will be so few believers left on the planet when the rapture occurs that it's not noticed. And we forget that is a very valid... We don't know. God has not told us when the rapture is going to occur and there is the comparison with the days of Noah in the middle of uh, of uh, Matthew 24. It's not talking about the rapture. It's talking about the end of the tribulation period. But nevertheless, the principle of God's long-suffering is there. So God brought this war of judgment against the Canaanites because of the extent of their idolatry, and they were sacrificing babies they were burning them alive in the arms of the idols of, uh, of Chemosh and Baal and uh, um, others. And as a re- result of that, God brought judgment on them. They needed to be uh, surgically removed from the body of the human race because their evil would become so infectious. It was a, um, a true spiritual pandemic. And so that's the idea here. Now, what happens in we come to this last part of Judges, and it's the story of a war, a war that in places sounds like holy war, sounds like this war of judgment that they that the Israelites were to engage in with the Canaanites. How did... How did the book of Judges begin? Remember, it is a summary 
of the wars against the Canaanites during the time of Joshua. It is talking about that war of divine judgment. And in Judges 1, 1, and 2, we read, Now after the death of Joshua came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That's this war of judgment to continue to take complete control of the land. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Now the reason I'm going here is because when they ask the Lord, and when they when we get down to verse um, ver, about verse um, eighteen, and they ask the Lord, uh, "What shall we do? How shall we? Who shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin?" The Lord said, "Judah first. So you see, there's parallels. There's a mirror reflection that goes on between the beginning of the book and the end. Because he, the writer wants us to, to reflect back upon the beginning of this period. Because we know from the fact that in this passage later on, we get down to verse 28, Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, is mentioned. And in the previous episode, in chapter 17 and 18, the Levitical priest there is finally named, and he's the grandson of Moses. So we know that this is within a couple of generations of the beginning of the period of the judges. And so the, the writer is telling us that the, this, this evil that is taking over Israel uh, was present from the very beginning of this time period. And so when we, to remind you in that first chapter, uh, it begins with Judah teaming up with Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and they utterly destroyed it. That's the word karam. And they utterly destroyed it so that the uh, name of the city was called Horma from the basic, um, the, the H would be a CH, and the R and the M are the main consonants that are in Haram. So they named it Horma. Now, by the end of that first chapter, we discover that the tribes are beginning to compromise. They refuse to carry out the command of the Lord to totally annihilate the Canaanites, and so they begin to fail to even take control of the territory that God gave them. And so you have Ephraim and Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali are just, they, they're unable to take to conquest because they, because of spiritual compromise, they're a failure in their ability to take control of the land that God had, had promised them and given them. And not only that, but Dan is the worst because not only can they not take control of even a little bit, they're pushed back into the mountains and eventually that was the last two chapters were about is that they had to migrate and they basically stole land uh, from these uh, uh, co- uh, Phoenician colonists up in Laish, and they were just uh, just horrible. They were doing what was right in their own eyes, what seemed good to them, which is the theme of the book. Each of these things illustrates that, the consequences of what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes, what's good in their own eyes. So this is the tale of three battles, actually, once we get into the main section from uh, verse uh, 12 and 13 on. 
Uh, we saw last time the build-up in the first 11 verses, the tribes gathered together in verses 1 through 3, and then in verses 4 uh, down to verse 7, the Levite is uh, retelling the story of what happened to his concubine. And then in verse 8, we're told that they all the people arose as one man, emphasizing this unity. So they didn't have this kind of unity after about the third generation from Moses. So this is very early on. And so they are aroused. It's an emotional response. They are reacting to the criminality that is taking place in one of the tribes. And so they're going to go up against, verse 9, they're going to attack uh, attack Gibeah. And so we come to this last part of that reaction, and we begin to see the uh, inquiry. The Israelites, the other tribes, are going to gather together, and they go and they investigate, and they ask questions of the Benjamites as to what exactly has happened. And in verse 11, we're told that, that uh, all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. So that echoes verse 8. They're in complete unity. And then the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin. So they're not just asking some leaders. They're sending out a recon- or many reconnaissance teams, and they are investigating. They're talking to people all through the tribal land of Benjamin, to find out just exactly what has uh, what has happened, and then we read in verse uh, twelve, then the tribes of, uh, they're asking, "What is this wickedness that has occurred there?" Verse thirteen. Then they say, when th- once they realize what has happened, they realize that there are some who are guilty in Gibeah, and they they uh, put out an ultimatum: deliver up the men, and in the Hebrew, they're sons of Belial. And the sons of Belial, Belial was said by the rabbis to be another name for Satan. So recognizes that this is an idiom for wicked and perverted people. And they are to give them up, uh, those that are in Gibeah, that they may be put to death. Because what they did to the concubine was a death penalty offense. So they they are approaching this from a legal perspective. They've gone out, they've talked to people, they've gathered witnesses, they've got the information, and then they uh, reach their conclusion that you need to hand these men over for arrest so that we can then uh, pun- punish them. But look at the response from Benjamin. They don't care. They're they're, they're cold hearted. They're they're the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren the children of Israel. Can you think of maybe a contemporary event that this reminds you of? There are how, I can't tell you how many people have been voicing alarm for more than a decade about the laxness of our, of of the borders and that we're basically been going through an invasion from the South for well over 20 years. And yet, the powers that be just ignore it. They don't do anything until the states have tried to do what they can do. And I'm proud of our governor and Governor DeSantis and a few others. Uh, and it really didn't start with the governor. A lot of people don't realize this. It didn't start with uh, uh, the Texas governor. 
uh, with Abbott, it started in El Paso because the uh, the people in El Paso could not handle all of these uh, refugees who were uh, flooding across the border illegally, and they started shipping them to other states and other cities because they didn't have the framework to handle it. And so we're under invasion, and now that this uh, situation is going to change this week because we're no longer under the um, under the mandate related to to COVID. Uh, there's expecting just a, a an unbelievable flood of refugees to come across the border, and that's an invasion. And it and what's happened? I've read many reports at, from uh, ranchers, people who live close to the border. And how they're living, they've been living in a war zone for 10 or 20 years. And it's absolutely horrific, the crimes that occur, because you, it, these aren't your next door neighbor type of people who are coming across the border for the most part. You've got a lot of people who are involved in the, uh, in the cartels in Mexico, and they are bringing in drugs. The amount of fentanyl that's been coming across the border uh, each month for the last five or six years is unbelievable. There's enough fentanyl to coming across the border to kill every American 10 or 12 times. And yet that, you don't hear this kind of information in the, in the mainstream news. But that's what's happening. We're at a war, and, and the soul of this nation is, is the issue. And that's the same kind of thing. You have, you have 11 tribes coming to Benjamin, and saying this is a serious crime and you have to prevent it. And they say, what crime? What's wrong with this? We're fine with it. In fact, we'll fight you to the death to protect this kind of criminality. This is the kind of perversion that occurs when people get into idolatry and they throw out the absolutes of Scripture and everyone is doing what's good in their own eyes. And that's exactly what, what is happening now, here, and happened then. We have to go back to the beginning of Judges to be reminded in the summary of 2.11 to 13 of just what had taken place. In those, pass- those verses we read, then, that is, after the death of the elders. There's the death of Joshua, then the death of the elders, the leaders who were with Joshua, and after that generation passed on, uh, the writer of Judges summarizes, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what did they do? They enslaved themselves to the Baals, to the Baalim, to the idols. And the reason I, you know, they, they did evil. And when you read the word evil in Scripture, and you read the context, you discover that this isn't just talking about sin. This isn't just talking about people who've committed murder or they've committed sexual abuse crimes or rape or anything like that. It describes idolatry. It's because the, the, the evil of criminality, rampant criminality, is the result of abandoning God. And that's what's happened in our nation. And it started over 150 years ago. It started in the early uh, 1900s. But it didn't really come to a significant number until you got into the early 20s. So So in Israel, the sons of Israel did evil. What is the evil? 
they enslaved themselves to the Baals, and they abandoned. The old English is they forsook. The word means to abandon. They turned their back on the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, that phrase incorporates a lot. They they witnessed the, the ten plagues. They witnessed the first Passover. They witnessed the uh, deliverance at the Red Sea. They witnessed going to Mount Sinai, hearing the very voice of God from the mountain, and Moses coming down with the law. So that's all there. They've had that empirical knowledge. I point that out because a lot of people say, well, if God just showed up, if if Jesus just showed up, he could handle all of this. Point number one is he did that once, and they crucified him. And he's going to do it again for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released and they're going to have a massive rebellion of untold billions of people who rebel against Jesus. Perfect rule. Because the problem is sin. The problem is the evil of the human heart and the desire to be self-sufficient and to not have to be obedient to God. And so this is what happened in their in their culture. They um, they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. So they become as just like the Canaanites. You can't tell the difference. And that's what we're going to see in this war. They're they're they become no different from the Canaanites around them. Um, so they bowed down and they provoked the Lord to anger. And that term is also always emphasizing God's judicial action against people who have violated his his law. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and enslaved themselves to the Baal and the Asherah. So we come to verse 14 now in chapter, chapter 20, when the armies are mobilized. And in verse 14, we read that after... <clears throat> the other 11 tribes have told them to do, give up the men, hand them over to us so we can execute them. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from their cities to Gibeah. So they come in from their farms, they come in from their vineyards, and they come to, the, to this small village of Gibeah. Um, and... Uh, to go to battle against the children are the sons of Israel. And from from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered uh, 26,000 men who drew the sword. So they have um, 26,000 who draw the sword, and then they have, along with that, 700 choice men. Okay, and that's an important word. I pointed that out last time. <clears throat> it's the same word that often is translated elect. <clears throat> but what it shows is there's always a qualification that these men are, are, are select their choice because they qualify as outstanding marksmen with uh, a slingshot. And we are qualified because we pos- to be elect because we possess the righteousness of Christ which comes when we believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior. But I want you to notice something else 
that's going on here. In verse 16, among all this people were 700 choice men who were left-handed. Now, what in the world is going on here? They're left-handed. They're expert marksmen. They are choice because they could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. So uh, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. So they're clearly outnumbered. What's the significance of the left-handed man? The significance of the left-handed man is that they were considered a handicap in their culture because left-handed lefties are a minority. And why would they be considered a handicap? Well, for one reason, in combat, when you have a left-handed man in a group of right-handed men, it creates a danger. It creates a problem. However, if you can form a unit of left-handed men and you have a full company of or a battalion of left-handed uh, slingers, then it's it's a problem for the other side because you've got right-handed men attacking all these left-handed men. They're used to attacking somebody who's also right-handed, so that creates a lot of confusion. So a battalion of left-handed slingers is going to have an advantage. But there's another little nuance that's going on here. This is the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the last child of Rachel. When he was born, Rachel died. His father Jacob named him the son of my right hand. So here you have a tribe that's called the son of my right hand, and they have a battalion of southpaws, a battalion of lefties. So there's irony there, and that this is a... This is a problem. It's also a contrast to the right-handed swordsmen that are, are mentioned there uh, in verse, uh, verse 17. So the men of Israel, in verse 17, numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. So you're dealing with right-handed swordsmen with these left-handed slingers. So you'd expect this is going to bring about some sort of problem. So now what we do is we come into the point where we're going to talk about uh, this first battle. There's three battles. The third battle has uh, has three stages to it. Okay, so the first couple the first couple of battles are around four verses each, but the last battle, the third battle, goes on for for much much longer and goes from uh, approximately verse uh, 26 all the way down to the end of the chapter. Okay, so we come to the first battle. This is 18 to 21, and let me just read it. Then the sons of Israel arose and went up to the house of God. Now, this sounds good, doesn't it? They went to church to pray. I think last week we had a national call to prayer. I'm I'm real critical of these things. Everybody got, oh, Tucker Carlson spoke at Heritage. He called everybody to pray. There's a lot of Muslims who, oh, yeah, let's go pray, and they're just talking to the ceiling. There's Buddhists who are talking to the ceiling. 
What does Tucker Carlson know about prayer? In the same speech, he said he comes from one of the one of the most liberal liberal denominations of Episcopalians. What does he know about prayer? It just sounds like a great religious thing to do. But we have to think discernment. Just because you hear somebody say say words that you like doesn't mean that they have a clue what they're saying. And these guys, oh, we're going to go to battle, so let's go ask God. So we have the veneer of spirituality. But it's a fake, it's just a veneer. They, they, they're not submissive to God. They just want to have a show of, of religion so that everybody will think that, that we're doing, uh, we're doing well. So they go to the house of God. Now the name of the Hebrew word for house of God, the Hebrew word for house is bait. Like in the alphabet. That's where we get it. Alpha, bait. Alpha, aleph. And bait, bait means house. Each word, each letter has a has, has a meaning. So then the sons of God arose and went to Beit El, the house of God, to inquire of God. Notice it's Elohim and not Yahweh. To inquire of God, they said, which of us will go to battle first against the children of Benjamin? So Apparently, there's a shrine or an altar there at Bethel. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And they go there to inquire of God, and God answers them. How about that? God, in his grace, answers them. And what does God say? They ask him, which of us should go up to battle against the children of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah first. So that God is giving them guidance. This is divine guidance. And what's the result going to be? 22,000 are going to be killed. Now, we have to think about that a little bit. They're doing what God said to do, and it doesn't turn out. What's that, that all about? Most people probably read that, and well, I don't know. The Bible's confusing. I'll go watch football. Um, so the sons of Israel rose in the morning and they encamped against Gibeah and the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin and the men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against, uh, against them at, at Gibeah. So for all intents and purposes, this has the markings of a war of judgment, a harem, but it's against their own people. Now, when we talked about Judges 1 at the beginning, what happened? What happened? They started off strong and enthusiastic, and several of the tribes conquered the land that God had given them, but then the others just, they faded out. They didn't hang in there. They, in fact, they just compromised, and they were unable uh, to, take, take, to take their land. And so uh, they lost the enthusiasm for the war. Now, the irony here is now you have 11 tribes united together and, and they have more enthusiasm to go into a war against one of their own, their own brothers at another tribe, than they had to go against the Canaanites. And the problem is that Benjamin has been acting more like the Canaanites uh, than the Canaanites. And so that's, that's another part of, of the... Um, of the irony. 
So in this next slide, I want to show you a picture, a map. And so down here, you can see in the yellow is the tribal allotment for Benjamin. Bethel is up here uh, at, to the north. Just below that is Mizpah, where they all initially, where the Israelites all initially gathered together. Then there's a town just south of there, Gibeon, which is not the same as Gibeah. They didn't have Gibeah on the map. I put a red dot there. That's where Gibeah is located. It's sort of an, um, uh, it's not, and it's not a far northern province, but it's sort of, it's only about four or five miles from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem on the north side of Jerusalem. It's all within the city of Jerusalem today. So this is this is where the attack's taking place. And most of this area, as you go towards Jericho, just is very arid uh, hills. It's just, just, just desert. So they inquire of God, which is just superficial religion, and uh, God, in his grace, answers them. The pro- one part of the problem is that they have made this decision already. They said, we're going to go up against Gibeah, Gibeon. And um, so when they come to pray, they're not asking God, should we do this? They're asking God, when we uh, look at the verse, they're asking God, how should, how should we do this? Which of us shall go up to the battle first? They've already made the decision, so there's no humility there's a level of self-sufficiency and arrogance, a uh, complete lack of ge- genuine humility, but God nevertheless answers them, and we need to ask the question, why? We'll come to an answer in just a minute. The result is they lose uh, 22,000. Now, what's the significance of Bethel? The past Bethel is a second name for a Canaanite city that was named Luz originally. And it is located, as I pointed out on the map, to the north of Jerusalem, probably about six, seven miles to the north of Jerusalem. And the first time it's mentioned in the Bible is when Abraham is coming into the land for the first time. And Abraham comes down what is called today the Road of the Patriarchs. He's coming down basically the spine of the hill country in the hill country of Samaria, and he stops at Shechem, which is now a small area within the uh, larger area of the uh, Arab city, uh, Nablus. And there he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. So he's proclaiming Yahweh in the midst of these Canaanites that are already living there. And then he leaves there, and in Genesis 12, uh, 6, he goes down, and he and Sarah camp between... Bethel on the west and I on the east. And that's what uh, 12.8 says, rather. Uh, he moved his, um, and he moved there from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then in 13.3, he is going to be coming back from the south, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Now, there's a spot that is marked based on Jewish tradition. A 4th century Byzantine church was built there, and I've been there, and I'm hoping I can get our group there this time. It's hard to get there. I don't know if a bus can get there. 
But it's really neat because you're standing right there, and you know that you're you're within 50 yards of wherever Abraham and, and Sarah camped and where Jacob came back and camped and where they built this altar. And you just stand there looking due north, and I is straight this way, and Bethel is this way, and you're just right on, on the spot. Jacob is going to come back when he comes back into uh, uh, the country, and he... Uh, or a- actually when he leaves the country, leaves Beersheba, he goes north to Haran, and uh, that m- means that he's traveling that way of the patriarchs going north, and he came to a certain place. I love the way the Bible creates this suspension. Sus- suspension. What place? doesn't tell you right away. He came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. You think, you need my pillow. He put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder or a staircase was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh Elohim of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. So in that verse, he's reiterating the promise to Abraham and to Isaac of the Abrahamic, uh, Abrahamic covenant. And at the end of that description, uh, Genesis 28:17 says, Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the place is going to be renamed Bethel. That's where the name comes from. Now, when we look in our passage in chapter 20, the tabernacle is located all through this time period in Shiloh, which is about eight miles north of Bethel, and eight or ten miles, something like that. But they brought the Ark of the Covenant uh, down to use it, as Joshua had at Jericho and I. Remember when they came into the land, the priest got in front, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, their feet went into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River split, and they crossed on dry land. And when they went to Jericho, the priest marched in front of them, and they walked all the way around Jericho and were completely silent. They did that for seven days. The seventh day they did it seven times, blasted the horns, and the walls came down. And then they went to Ai, and they do the same thing. They carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And so uh, this is very significant. So they moved the Ark down to uh, Bethel because this is where there's apparently some sort of sanctuary. And later on, Jeroboam I, after the northern kingdom splits, uh, he's going to build a, a sanctuary on that same spot with the golden calf. So all of this is highly significant. And then what happens is the children of Israel came out of Gibeah, and on that day they cut down to the ground 22,000 men. So what's the response of the men of Israel? They strengthened themselves and again formed the battle line at the place when they put themselves in array on the first day. And then they went up. They had lost 22,000 of their comrades, and they go before the Lord And what are they doing? They're weeping. People will think, oh, they were repenting. No, they weren't. They were having an emotional reaction. It's like a lot of people. They go to God and they worship God on the basis of emotion, not on the basis of the facts of Scripture. 
And because they are not operating on the facts of Scripture, God's going to have to slap them in the butt one more time. So they asked the Lord again, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord says, Go up against him. So why is God doing this? Well, first of all, their inquiry of God is superficial. They don't ask, shall we go up? They ask, who should we send up first? And so they've made the decision without consulting God. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're still doing what's right or good in their own eyes. And the answer is the uh, the grace of God. So they um, ignore the one there. Uh, They did not approach God according to the instruction of the law. There's no sacrifice. There's no high priest. They are not doing it God's way. And God says, when you don't worship me my way, it's not valid. Worship doesn't depend on how it makes you feel. Worship depends on whether you're doing it, coming to me on the right basis. And so there has to be a sacrifice. They finally get it afterward. The nation is not, and this nation is far from guiltless and innocent. They've already been condemned because they have uh, abandoned God. They have turned to the evil of the, of the idols. And so, uh, because they have been condemned, God needs to punish them too and have them come to Him the right way. They need to learn some humility and, uh, uh submit to His authority. So all through this, they just keep doing it the, what they think is right instead of what God says is right. This, in, the, in Scripture, when it says they did, did right in the, in the sight of God, literally it's they did right in the eyes of God. And when they're doing what's right in their eyes of man, or when it says they did right, uh, did um, uh, good, it, what was good in the eyes of man, it's uh, did what was right in the eyes of man, it was really what's good in the eyes of man. So they're just treating God as a good luck charm. So we ask this question, why does God allow this disaster? And that's the wrong question. So you're going to have to, you're going to get caught in this issue of, well, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Well, first of all, they're not good people. They were in rebellion against God. God, part, part of the reason God allows suffering is because of discipline. Now that's not the only reason. But a lot of the one reason God allows suffering is because it teaches us to humble ourselves before the Lord. And that's what God is is doing here. So they get ready to go the second time. And in verse 22, we read, but the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves, arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. Uh, After they wept, let's skip down to verse 24. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again, 18,000 men of the sons of Israel. All these drew the sword. So the slingers beat the swords. Now, they've lost 40,000. God has finally gotten their attention. And so they're going to do things differently. When we come to the third battle... We're going to see this within the description of this battle, which goes from uh, verse 26 all the way down to verse 48. Uh, There's two important verses in there that the writer inserts to get our attention. 
The first is in verse 34. 10,000 select men or choice men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. What, is he, what, is, what does the writer tell us? But the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. They're blinded. They're arrogant. They're blinded to the realities. And then seven, eight verses later, 2041, and when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. God promised them the third time that there would be a victory. What's the difference? Pay attention. So when we get into this this next next section, we see in verse um, let me go back here twenty six. We see in verse twenty six. Then all the children, after the second try, all the sons of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. Now, you see, there's not a problem with having emotion. The problem is it's not the basis for worship. It's not emotion first. Now, when you've had 40,000 of your comrades in battle get killed, that's emotional. So they're weeping. They're grieving. There's nothing wrong with that, but they're, that's not how they're approaching God. That's how they approach God after the first battle. They came to the house of God, they wept, and then they fasted that day until evening, and then they offered burnt offerings. Whole burnt offerings uh, were necessary because they're saying the purpose of the offering was say, everything I have is being burned up and given to you. That's the symbol symbolism of a burnt offering. And then um, they had peace offerings before the Lord, showing that there's now peace between God and them. So they're following the Levitical offering law, which they had not done before. We have to come to God on God's terms, not on our terms. And so they do that. And then for the first time, we see the, the um, uh, high priest the children of Israel are inquiring of the Lord. We don't know how they did that. Maybe uh, because he's the high priest, he has the Urim and Thummim, and there's some way that they get communication from God. We don't know. Uh, uh, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days saying, Shall I yet, he's asking the Lord, shall I yet again go uh, to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord says, Notice the different response. He says, go up for tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hand. This is the first time God promised that they were going to have victory. And so the men approach it a different way. They're going to go back and look at what happened at I, and they're going to use the the uh, ambush. And so they set, verse 29, the Israel set men in ambush all around the city. So this is the first phase of, of the battle, and they set up an ambush. That's the that's the first thing, and then uh, the second thing. Uh, the second thing is that uh, the Benjamites are overconfident, 
and they expect that they're going to have the same results the third time that they had the first time and the second time. And they declare this confidence uh, in verse 32. So 31, we read the children of, Israel, of Benjamin went out against the people, were drawn away from the city that's into, going to bring them into this ambush. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at the other time. So they kill 30, and they think, we've got them. They're overconfident. And they said, they're defeated before us as at first. That's expressing the overconfidence. But the children of Israel said, let's flee and draw them away from the city uh, to the highways. And so this is what happens, what happens next. So all the men of Israel rise from their place and put themselves in battle array at a place we don't know the location of, uh, Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plain of Geba and uh, go against Gibeah. And the battle's fierce, but the Benjamites don't realize that they've already lost and the disaster is there. And so what what then happens is you get into the phase, the second phase of this third battle, and we're told the Lord defeated them. Not, it wasn't the skill of the sons of Israel. It is the Lord who defeats Benjamin before Israel. And the Israelites destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All those, all these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set uh, against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Who's missing? Where are the 700 left-handed slingers? Keep that in mind. Verse 38, now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke. So they're going to send up a smoke signal. And when the men in Israel on the other side, see the, the city is behind the, the Benjamin troops. So there, the, when, once this other group gets into the city, they're going to send up a smoke signal. And then that's when the ambush comes in. And, uh, then Benjamin had to, um, uh, had a term. They, they thought that they were defeated, that they had defeated the Israelites. But when the cloud began to rise from the, from the city, the Benjamites looked behind him. There was the whole city going up in smoke to the heavens. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked for they saw disaster was upon them. This is a strong word for, for disaster. So they turned their backs, uh, before the men of Israel, but the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities, they destroyed in their midst. So they're just all but annihilated. See, that was what the the Israelites were supposed to do to the Canaanites, and now they all but annihilate all of one of their tribes. This is amazing. It just shows how when you're in paganism, you reverse everything. What's a boy is a girl. What's a girl is a boy. You just start thinking in total opposites. You can't figure reality out anymore. So we come into the third phase. 
verses 43 to 48. So they surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah towards the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. They're, they're tough warriors. Then they turn. So what's left of them turns and they flee toward the rock of pomegranate. That's what Ramon means. It's a pomegranate. The rock of the pomegranate. And they cut down 5,000 along the highway. So the Israelites are continuing to fight them and to kill them. And they pursue them relentlessly to to, uh, Gidom and kill 2,000 of them. So all who fell that day, uh, here we have a summary. Earlier it was 25,100. And here it's just, they just say uh, 25,000. All the, when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked for they saw the disaster upon them and the battle overtook them and they were destroyed. So I think I got that slide in there twice. 43. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them and trampled them down. Did I get this in here twice? 43 to 48. Yeah, they, they turned, killed 2,000 there, 46. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor, but 600 men turned and fled to the rock of Ramon. Now what happens is these end up being uh, most of the 700. When we get to the last verse, we read, And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. That's what they were supposed to do in the War of Judgment, was to kill all the men, women, and children and all the animals. So that's what they're doing here. And then they set fire to all the cities that, that they came to. So we see this just complete, complete reversal of everything. Now, next time, we're going to recognize that there is, there's a problem. And the problem is that they're left with just a few hundred men in Benjamin and no women. Everybody's been slaughtered. And how are they going to bring back the tribe? So we'll talk about that next time. But let's conclude with a few lessons. So as we look at this, as we come to look at this, we recognize that Israel is a a sinful nation that has profound faults and flaws. They have become just like the people they were supposed to bring judgment upon. And they are acting just like the Canaanites. The Benjamites have become as bad as the Canaanites in in their defense of the criminality that occurred uh, within their city. So the second thing that happens is God has become the enemy of his own people. And he must bring the 11 tribes against Benjamin in order to purge the evil out of, out of Israel. And a third observation is that all of Israel suffers because of the sin of one, one city. Kind of makes you think how the United States is going to suffer because of the sin of states on the left coast. That's another thought. So what we see here is that uh, it's just one family. The breakdown of one family leads to the breakup of the, of the nation. 
and brings about this this total civil war that almost completely annihilates an entire tribe. So next time we'll come back and look at chapter 21 and how this issue is going to be resolved. And that will probably take about the first part, of first third or two-thirds of the class, and then we'll do a good review of Judges with a, with a wrap-up. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to get into this study. It's not always a pleasant study. It's not always one that is uh, uplifting because we see mirrored in Israel at this time our own culture, our own nation, our own people whom we love. But we see that they have turned their backs upon you. We see that they there is open hostility to the Bible, to Christianity uh, in many quarters. It's veiled in some quarters, but we discover often too late that leaders of corporations, uh, leaders of educational institutions, uh, leaders in uh, political entities, whether they are city, state, or national, have in their hearts turned their back on you. They have abandoned you. And so they, uh, they say one thing in public while they are working to do something completely opposite in private. And this is what has led to this horrible state of this union with the rise of, crim- uh, rise of criminality, the, the, the problem at the borders, uh, the problems of education and many places not wanting parents to have anything to say about their children. We have turned into our own worst enemy. And Father, the only hope is to turn back to you and to your word and to apply the principles of Romans 12.2 to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And apart from that, then we just stand as witnesses in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So, Father, we pray for steadfastness, we pray for stamina, and we pray that we will not grow weak in our steadfast obedience to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.